Hi everyone, this is Steve Hargadon and welcome to Conversations.net and TheFutureOfEducation.com. This is an exciting evening, 417 of you in the room. Delighted to have you here to greet Sir Ken Robinson. Sir Ken, thanks for being here. It's a real pleasure, Steve. Thanks for asking me. Well, much appreciated. So the Conversations.net and FutureOfEducation.com interview series are sponsored by my employer, Illuminate. And please feel free to come to our free LearnCentral.org social network for educators that incorporates uh, the free use of Illuminate in the platform. We think it's historic and hope that you will like it as a professional development tool. Coming up on the education series, uh, tomorrow we start our Education for Digital World 2.0 series. Uh, more details on futureofeducation.com. Then two good Merlot Classics sessions, classic award-winning sites, including Carl Blythe from the Texas Language Tech Program, where they do this terrific uh, uh, program with upper-class uh, students who create the lessons for the uh, incoming students. Then Tony Wagner on the Global Achievement Gap, Sir uh, Scott Robin <laughs> Rosenberg, I've gotten nervous, Scott Rosenberg on Say Everything, and Larry Ferlazzo, Tim Magner, and Dr. Robert Epstein on two, uh, Team 2.0. You can see lots of fun things in store. And we are going to try and follow this student 2.0 thread over the next couple of months, so I hope that's fun for you. If you've missed the session, do know that all the recordings are up, both at conversations.net and futureofeducation.com, and we hope that you'll um, enjoy listening to them. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is an interactive environment. You'll notice that you have some options at the bottom of the participant window. You can use a smiley face, you can clap, you can show confusion or thumbs down. We don't expect either of those tonight. To the left of those is a hand with a green up arrow. That's your way of raising your hand when we go to the Q&A. If you think you'd like to take the microphone, then you do raise your hand to do that. We give you the microphone. But before that, you should go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure that your microphone is configured correctly. Uh, with the numbers of people we have in the chat, I do recommend that you go up to View Layouts and select the Wide Layout to be able to follow the chat tonight. So we're going to give you a chance now to participate. To the left of the map, you should see a wand with a star. Go ahead and click on that. Place yourself on the map. And then feel free to shout out in the chat where you're listening from. If your sound is choppy, do go to the video box, look for the drop down, and change the resolution on the video to a lower resolution. And hopefully that will um, make the sound a little better for you. I can't even, Sir Ken, I can't even read all of these places. They're coming by so fast. That's great to watch the map. Wow, wow. We've got some big pictures there. Okay, I'm, I'm going to delete those just for the purpose of keeping our map straight. Okay, sure, a lot of fun to have everybody it's like here. It's like a telethon. Like a telethon, Terry? <laughs> okay, so I am going to ask Teresa and Angela to take notes from the chat. If you have a question, uh, they will be looking for those questions to answer. Um, but I am going to start by asking a few questions of Sir Ken uh, to get us rolling here. So, um, Ken, I listened to the book by audio, or a good portion of it, and I really enjoyed that. But I was surprised because I thought, that's a lot of time for you to take uh, out of your schedule to record that. Did you have to make that decision, or is that just something that's expected now? Uh, no, it's not expected. I was asked if I'd like to do an audio version of the element. And uh, I thought it was a great idea, because you know, people can listen to it in the car and on the plane, not in the bath maybe, you know, but, but somewhere portable. But when the idea was put to me, I thought, well, who else would read it? You know, it's a very personal book in some ways. You know, it tells uh, stories that are very uh, personal to my life. And, and I wrote it in my voice, you know, so I thought it was best I should read it. And I enjoyed doing it. The thing is, I spent three days uh, in an audio booth in Connecticut uh, doing it. It should have taken four days. I only had the three. And this audio booth is about the same size as one of those portable toilets, you know, that you get at a festival. Uh, so it wasn't altogether a comfortable experience, but I, I was pleased. It was a, a good experience to have had. 
Well, I want you to know that as a, a reader or a listener, I really appreciated hearing it in your voice. So we're getting some uh, concern that people are having bandwidth issues, and, and what that does is it reduces their audio. So, Sir Ken, can I ask you to actually reduce your audio output? Just go to that same box and switch to, say, medium grays, and that should improve the audio experience for those who are listening. Okay. Really appreciate that. Like that? Well, we'll see. And if anybody's still having problems, just let us know. But it looks like it's getting a little bit better. So one of the things I loved about the start of the book was that you showcased three very different individuals, including someone in a pretty traditional career. And it, it kind of led the, uh, the book off with a sense that this is not, this is not necessarily touchy-feely, that this is a pretty serious and important topic. I'm assuming that was by choice. And have other people responded positively to that way of starting? Yeah, I mean, the, the, tell me if this sounds so okay, Steve. You know, it's an interrupt, but it's not. But uh, yeah, the, the original idea for the book was that it would be mainly stories about people's lives, because I've thought for a long time that most people don't really find the thing they love to do with their lives. You know, they they endure the work they do rather than enjoy it. And I wanted to show in the stories that we chose for the book that this is a set of principles that apply across every type of work. You know, it's not just about the arts, although they're important. It's in all different types of work. And the stories are there not because they're meant to be examples for other people to follow, but because they, they suggest principles that people can apply in their own lives. So the stories are really central to the whole strategy of the book. So Ken, it looks like you may have actually lowered your audio, your microphone volume rather than having changed the video output. So if you go to uh, audio, just raise your audio volume just a little. Right. Maybe about the middle. That's terrific. And then okay. at the bottom of the video box, you should have a drop down where you can choose medium grays. Yes. And go ahead and choose that, and we'll see how it does. OK. How's that? That's terrific for me. We'll, we'll let the chat people let us know. So I did love the fact that the, the book was much in story format. And for me, it helped to kind of bring me into that world, knowing that they, there may be some natural reluctance to kind of make this mental shift. The, the story after story after story kind of encouraged me more and more to kind of dive into this world. How big a paradigm shift is this for most people? Well, I think um, it's a big shift for systems. You know, one of the themes that runs through the book is the implications of the arguments of the element for education. And that's a big shift, because the current education system is locked in a very old way of thinking, uh, particularly about human talent and ability. But I think it's also difficult for people. You know, people make all kinds of excuses not to do things that they love to do. I have a whole chapter in the book you know, called What Will They Think, which is about the obstacles people face in their own lives, you know, their personal fear of making change, or attitudes of people around them, you know, their friends or their family, and the big cultural obstacles. So I don't underestimate it. You know, I think it's, it's a big challenge. But it's a challenge we have to face, because the consequences are really severe, I think, for individuals and for our economies and for our culture for, of wasting so much talent. So it's a big shift, but it's one we have to make. So you talk about there being another climate crisis um, and sort of changing metaphors. Do you want to dive into that just a little? Yeah, the, the analogy I made in the book is with the crisis that I think most people accept that we have now with the world's natural environment. You know, the, I think people have got the argument, at least I hope they have, that there's something serious going on in the world's natural resources. But the real argument of the book is that we have a similar crisis in our use of human resources. It's not a very nice phrase, I don't think, human resources, but it captures something. Uh, what I mean by it is that we waste vast amounts of talent. And it happens in this, for the same reasons that, that we've destroyed parts of the environment. You know, we've lived the past 300 years with the appetites and the excesses of industrialism. And the consequence of that is that we've taken all kinds of um, natural resources from the ground and destroyed a lot, of a lot else that's remained. And I think that's what we've done with education for the most part. We've educated people for the industrial world. And most of what they have to offer hasn't been seen as being very valuable. And the consequence of that is we have massive disaffection, we have massive dropouts from schools, uh, and we have 
you know, too much disillusion and disengagement. So I think the parallel is exact. The other way it's exact, you know, is that natural resources, human resources are often buried beneath the surface. You don't always find them without looking for them. You know, they just don't always show themselves very obviously. So that's why we have to have different strategies in place. There are all kinds of examples of that. You know, we, uh, my wife Terry is uh, a major fan of Elvis Presley. Um, I can't exaggerate really the extent to which that is true, as a matter of fact. And uh, we were watching a great movie recently about the life of Elvis Presley that was made by some friends of ours, um, uh, Michael and Carol Rose. And one of the things that came out from that is that Elvis Presley, uh, when he was at school, wasn't rated as a singer. You know, they, he wasn't allowed in the glee club at school uh, in Tupelo, Mississippi. Uh, the other kids said he would ruin their sound. This is Elvis Presley, you know, like the greatest rock singer in history. Well, you know, we all know what great high glee club went on to, you know, once Manuski Belvis out of the way. But it happens in all kinds of settings, you know, that people's natural talents don't show themselves without the opportunity being provided and without it being valued in the right way. And that's why it's a big shift in education. We have to think differently about people. So your TED talk was in 2006. And yeah. it, it feels as though culturally we have to kind of negotiate ideas. We have to kind of figure them out. And they take time to seep in. Do, do you have a sense that, that now in 2010, we're a little bit more ready for that message than we were in 2006? Well, you know, that, that talk was, I said, it was in 2006. It's been downloaded uh, over 4 million times, uh, and I think over 300 countries. So it's obviously resonated in a big way. I mean, by the way, before I get too carried away with that, you know, my uh, daughter, Kate, pointed out to me a while ago that there's um, a 90 second video on YouTube of two kittens that seem to be having a conversation. And that's been downloaded 25 million times. You know, so I'm not getting carried away here, Steve. You know, I, mean, I think if I looked a bit cuter, you know, it might have had a bigger impact already. But it has resonated with people then. And by the way, the stuff I'm arguing for, I haven't invented this. You know, I didn't make it up. And it's not new or recent. There's a tradition behind the things I talk for in education, in holistic medicine, in holistic psychology, which goes back to 300 years and actually in some respects into antiquity. I think really what I'm doing is I'm just being the messenger for this in, in, in this latest set of circumstances. And I feel that very powerfully. But I think things have shifted. I was back at TED uh, this February. Uh, I was asked to go back and, and in a way pick up where I left off. So I have a new TED talk that's coming out in about uh, a week or two, I hope. Um, and I do think that things are shifting. You see, the analogy with the green argument is very important to me. You know, even 10 years ago, people weren't taking the green argument that seriously. Some people were. But it wasn't in the mainstream of politics. It wasn't in the mainstream of how corporations thought. It wasn't in the mainstream of mo most people's lives. It was still seen as a kind of vaguely hippie thing, um, you know, or a set of ideas that left-wing intellectuals had embraced, or vegetarians. Well, they all still embrace that. But now, the idea has taken root. And it's partly, I think, because of the work of people like Al Gore. It's partly the impact of documentaries like Inconvenient Truth and Eleventh Hour. But whatever the cause is, there's been a shift in sensibility. And now people across the planet are recognizing they have to do something about ecology, about the environment. They have to behave differently. And I think we might be approaching a similar point in the way we think about people. You just have to look at the movements in psychology, in uh, self-help, in personal growth, in spiritualism, and spiritual development. I think people are ready for a shift. And I hope that I'm some small part of moving that shift forward a little bit. I think you're definitely a pretty big part of it, at least for those of us who are here. Um, I've noticed that for me, uh, as I read the book, I, I thought, wow, I, my element is the web. These yeah. kind of live meetings, uh, social networking. I discovered my element at age 47 on the web. 
And I'm wondering to what degree the internet is playing a role here in allowing a sort of creative output and opportunity. And do you see that as a part of the larger story? There's no question about it. I think digital culture is changing everything. You know, I mean, when I was growing up in England, you know, in the 50s and 60s, I, I, I spoke recently, you know, at a, at a conference for the Consumer Electronics Association, and. Uh, we were talking there about how consumer electronics have become this dominant world business in the past 30 years. You know, 30 years ago, there were really only like four consumer devices in electronics. Now, there were a television, a radio, a record player, and a telephone. And that was it. You know, if you had those four things, there was no reason to go back to Best Buy. You know, they had nothing else for you. Made a different color. But now, there are thousands upon thousands of consumer electronics, most of them rooted in digital culture. And the shift has been inestimable, really. You know, it's a big game changer. It's like television changed everything. It's like the motor car changed everything. Digital culture has changed the nature of work. It's changed how, the way people connect. It changes how they socialize. It changes how we get information. It changes in some ways who we think we are because it changes the context in which we operate. Now, it's not clear yet how it's going to play out, and you know, it will not stop anytime soon. It's getting faster and more pervasive. But it's a big piece of it. And there are two, I think, principal ways in which it's important to what we're talking about. One is that these new digital technologies have given people tools for creative thinking, for creative development that have never been available and never been available to so many. So I can see all around this massive kind of avalanche of new creative development and new creative thinking. More and more people are finding outlets and tools here that they can use. And the second is, it's helping people be connected in a way that they never could before. What's not clear yet is whether all this connectedness will lead to more depth in relationships and whether all this information will lead to more wisdom. Uh, and that's really what we need on both counts. We need good relationships and we need people to think more deeply. At the moment, we've got more things to think about. Whether we're thinking better about them is another matter. You know, I, I made a real connection between your use of the word tribe and the kind of uh, communities that build on the web. And I thought immediately of the open source programmers who sort of on the front lines began to program and, and were, became part of apprenticeship relationships and really were inculcated into a, a model and a group. Um, do, uh, do you see that same connection with the internet and tribes? Oh, yeah. I, mean, I have a, you know, a whole chapter in the book called Where's My Tribe? And the, the point of that is to say that you know, there are a lot of myths about creativity, which is one of the things I talk about in the book. And one of them is it's a purely solo thing. You know, it's all about lone geniuses. And the truth is really that most achievement, and certainly most creative work, is collaborative. It draws from other people's ideas, it builds on them, it draws from the stimulation other people present to us, and it, it draws from our interactions with other ways of thinking and other values, other times in history and so on. Um, so this idea of where's my tribe is important because uh, finding other people who share your passion, who have the same set of interests and convictions, is vital in all kinds of ways. It's very affirmative. Uh, it helps to validate the things we do. But also, it raises the bar you know, on our own achievements. You see it all the time. You look at the history of rock music. You, know, you look at it in poetry. You see it in science. You see it in all areas of human endeavor. Once people connect with other people on the same journey, it changes the course of the journey for everybody. I think it's a really powerful dynamic. And the internet, of course, gives us all kinds of ways of connecting with people that we've never had access to. So are there standard kinds of pushback that you get? Do, do people come back to you and say, well, I don't buy this for the following reason? Uh, yeah. Yeah, they did. <laughs> um, I refuse to speak to these people now, Steve, actually. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I do. I do. But uh, I do speak to them. No, they do. I'll tell you, I get a couple of bits of pushback. One of them is for reasons I, I I hope are substantive. You know, sometimes people read the book and say, well, it's great, it's all about celebrities. Well, you know, it's not. That's the first thing. I mean, there are a lot of, lot of celebrities in the book. And the reason there are is because I want to show that you know, people who've achieved a lot 
by finding the thing they love and their passion, finding their element. Um, often had a difficult journey to get there. You know, what we see now is their apparent success. But what I try to tell in the book are the stories of how they got there and other people who played a part in it and the obstacles they overcame and, and the difference it made, often to lives that w- which were going off the rails until they found this thing uh, that animates them and turned them around. So, to me, the book isn't about celebrities. It's about the journeys of people, some of whom went off to be celebrities. The fact is, though, they weren't born as celebrities. You know, they, they became celebrated by being in their element, and that's part of the moral. But the other thing I say at the very beginning of the book is the book isn't about them. It's not about any of the people in the book. It's about you reading it. These are just stories to show that these are not theories. These are genuine examples uh, of people living real lives that aren't fairy tales. And that anybody can, with the right set of convictions and the right sense of confidence, set about doing this for themselves. And people do it all kinds of walks of life. So that's the first thing I sometimes get a bit of pushback on. But and the second isn't pushback, it's just the natural next question people ask, which is, this is great. You know, sometimes they will look it's great for them, you know, they've had this amazing life, you know, like, what about me? Um, and I think, you know, we owe an answer to that. So uh, I'm working now on the follow-up to the element, which is to answer that question about, well, for people who haven't found their element yet, what do they do? How do they find it? So the next book is about that. So I had a good laugh with my brother, and I'm going to give a shout out to him because he wrote a book called How Breakthroughs Happen, which is about how uh, innovation really comes from collaboration. But he and I were talking the other day about how our father uh, was dean of admissions at Stanford and then dean of admissions at Princeton. And we would sit around the dinner table hearing about all of the great accomplishments of all of these students or applicants. And we looked at each other like, well, what are we? We're the audience. You know, what, what can we do? I, I liked how you addressed that in the book and kind of the feeling of inadequacy, inadequacy that we can have. But the, the sort of realistic question that came to me that I would imagine you getting would be, if everyone's running around trying to find their passions, who's doing the real work? Now, I know you answered that, but how, how would you answer that? Well, I'll tell you a story about this. Um, I was up in San Francisco. Uh, with me doing a book signing, uh, and I was signing this guy's book. Um, by the way, I was not just signing one book, Steve. I wish to make this clear. It wasn't like this one guy in San Francisco bought a book, you know, the publisher called and said, get there quick, you know. I mean, I, I was signing many books, uh, hundreds of books. But this particular guy was standing in front of me, and he was in his 30s, and I, I asked him what he did. You know, you only get a minute when you're signing a book just to have a quick connection with somebody. And I said to him, you know, what, what do you do? And he said he was a fireman. And I asked him when he decided to be a fireman. He said, you know, I always wanted to be a fireman. Even at elementary school, I wanted to be a fireman. He said, actually, it was a problem for me at school because at school, everybody wants to be a fireman. But I did want to be a fireman. And he said, all I wanted to do the whole time at school was leave and join the fire service. And he said, I got to the junior year at high school and all my friends were applying to college. And he said, I was applying to the fire service. He said, I had one teacher who humiliated me in front of the whole class because, you know, he went around and said, where well, we're applying to, and I told him I was applying to the fire service. And he said, you know, in front of everybody, he said, you're throwing your life away. He said, you'll never amount to anything if that's all you choose to do with your life. You know, you could go on and have a great professional career, and, and uh, that's what we should think about. And he said, you know, it was humiliating, and I felt really um, put down by it. But I, it was all I ever wanted to do, so I applied to the fire service, and I've been in the fire service ever since. He said, but, you know, I was thinking the other day about this teacher, uh, and particularly when you were talking about the book just a few minutes ago, he said, because, you know, this particular teacher came to my mind, he said, because six months ago, I saved his life. Uh, he said he was in a car wreck, and my unit was called out, and I pulled him out of the wreckage, and gave him CPR and saved him. And he said, I saved his wife's life as well. He said, you know, I think he thinks better of me now. Well, you know, it doesn't get more real as a job you know, to be in the fire service or to teach, you know, or to work in social services or to work in the community. Um, so this idea that following your passion uh, simply means kind of tripping around, you know, covered in patchouli oil and, and staring at the sunset. Well, some people may do it, but 
But other people find their real passion doing work that other people would be either terrified by or wouldn't get at all. They wouldn't see the point in it. I was talking to a woman the other day on a plane who was an accountant. And it interests me because accountancy is so often quoted as like the ultimate boring job. You know, people say, well, you know, you, you might have done that. And I've never understood that because for some people, numbers are absolutely intoxicating and beautiful. And she said that. She said she'd always been in love with numbers since she was a kid. She loved maths and she loved accountancy because there was an elegance in balancing the books and working out the financial issues for the company that she worked with. And she couldn't wait to get to work every day. So my point really is that the book, I say somewhere in the book, is a hymn to diversity. If this is the big issue for me, that you know, human talent is very different, very varied. We all have very different passions. And I don't see why um, we can't all find some part of our lives where we do the things that really inspire us and that we find energizing um, as part of our daily life. Sometimes we can do it for a living, sometimes not. Um, but I don't find it at all whimsical as an idea or romantic. On the contrary, I think the price we pay for people being disengaged from their passions is enormous. Now, we see it around us every day, and for some people it's a catastrophe. So it seems to me that, that you, you make that clear in the book, and that, um, that there is a connection here with competency, and so maybe I could have found a, a wide number of things that became my element or that I was passionate about. But you, you, know, you develop competency in one area, you gain some confidence, so, um, a mentor is thoughtful and helps guide you. And so that, it, that you could become, I don't think I would have necessarily been the passionate accountant, but I could have been several other things that I can see myself having been passionate about. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I always keep saying this. I mean, I, I, I'm not legislating here. I, mean, I, I, you know, I don't think people are limited to one. It's not like ration. You know? I, mean, I know some people are really passionate about several things. And find it hard to choose. And I said, well, don't. You know, just keep going. And, and, and uh, maybe there'll come a point where one thing will dominate the rest. But if not, well, good luck to you if you find lots of things you'd love to do. Uh, and sometimes it changes over the course of your life. You know, people are passionate about things in their 20s, and then in their 30s and 40s, that changes, and they, they, they turn their attention to something else. Um, that's the whole point, really, you know, that, that life isn't linear, and it's not static or inert. You know, we're not objects. We're human beings. We live and breathe, and things change for us. And, and sometimes people come to a passion later in their life that they had turned away from earlier or thought they couldn't make anything of or make any sense of. And, and that becomes their abiding passion for the next phase of their life. So you're right. I mean, that, I mean if the internet hadn't come along uh, and you weren't able to do the things you're doing this evening, I don't suppose you'd have just spent your life wandering around parking lots not, wondering, not knowing what to do with yourself. You'd have found something. But it is about that. It's about making the connection between you and your circumstances and finding where those matches are. So you, you make a connection in the book between uh, different ways of, of measuring quality or assuring quality. And one is the fast food restaurant, and the other is the Michelin Guide. Is there a deeper level at which we're afraid of passion because it makes things less systematic, that uh, the, the moment we dive into this world, we recognize that it's going to take a little bit more work on the part of those who are responsible? Well, I, I think. Yeah, some people are frightened of engaging with, with their real interests because they're not quite sure what it's going to take them. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's important that we get this message over. You know, it's, it's important in various ways. I think it's essential for personal fulfillment that we do things that we find energizing. There's a big argument in the book about this, you know, about energy. And, um, and one way to think about it is that it, about the, 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 some activities give you energy, and some take them from you. You know that um, human energy isn't static and it's not limited. If you do things that you love to do, you can be physically exhausted by it, but spiritually uplifted. If you do things that you don't love to do, uh, you can be uh, physically. Um, stable, you know, not worn out by it, uh, but spiritually depleted. And I see this all the time, you know, people get to the end of the week doing the things they don't like, and they, uh, they're just kind of empty spiritually. But other people do things they love to do, 
and they could, you know, that thing I could have danced all night, you know, if, if they could have just kept their energy, if their, if their physical body held up a bit longer. So one way of thinking about the book is it's a spiritual argument, you know, I mean spiritual in the, the sense that it's, that all life is essentially energy, and it's about our internal spirits, how our spirits connect with other people, that determines the course of our lives, and the quality of our lives. So I think it's essential from that point of view. It's also essential from a social point of view, because if you have large numbers of people who are um, disengaged in any sense of purpose, who feel spiritually empty, if they feel disconnected, it creates all kinds of problems for them and for the people around them. You know, it, because we live in communities in the end, we don't live on our own, we live as part of networks. So I think there's a major social argument. It's one of the reasons I say that there's another climate crisis. You look at the numbers of people being incarcerated, the numbers of people who are you know, trying to get out of the way they live, either through drink or through drugs or whatever they do, just to take themselves away from their current anxieties or the way they have to live at the moment. Uh, you look at the numbers of people who are, I live in California, you know, where famously the state government is spending more money uh, projectedly on the state prison system than on the whole of public higher education. It's a ridiculous conception. Um, but it's also vital economically because the, the world is changing so fast technologically and economically that the only sure way we can invest in the future is to invest in ourselves, invest in our own talents. Uh, we can't predict what the future will be, but we can at least raise our own game, our own confidence, our own competency, so that we can engage in it, whatever it turns out, and whatever it throws in our direction. So, you know, the book begins with a whole series of stories about individuals, but in the end, it's a, it's a collective argument, not just an individual argument. And I think the strategic implications are really quite profound for the way we run companies and the way we run our schools. Yes, for those of us who are interested, particularly in education, it feels like the book really sort of starts and ends with education. Did, did you feel that way in writing it? Uh, yeah, I, I did. Um, uh, I mean, it's not only about education, but, you know, education is something we all have in common. We all go through it, and it's meant to be the primary way that we develop our this generation to face the future and ourselves to engage with the, with the lives we're leading now. So it's strategically fantastically important. Um, so I don't think you can talk really about developing talent and ability and human potential without talking about education, since it's education in a way that's responsible for us ignoring so much of it. So yes, it does start there and it does end there, but it, it, I, I think it has a pretty interesting ending journey on the way as well. Absolutely. So uh, as I read the book, I, also, I thought also of, and you, you mentioned the, the prison numbers in California, and how oftentimes the easy political position to take with regard to prisons is actually the uh, least effective and useful. Or do we see the same thing in education? Is it really easy to talk standards and test scores when, in fact, the really core critical issues are harder to address? I think it is, you know, I mean, I mean, I, I ought to say, I'm, I'm not against examinations, I'm not against testing, uh, I'm not against standardized testing. Um, all those things have a role. You know, nothing I'm arguing for is an argument against accountability, and I've written a lot elsewhere, you know, about uh, how companies can be more accountable for the work they do in, in innovation, and particularly about how schools should be made more accountable in the work they do. You know, it's about a whole nest of issues. I, I've run, you know, international projects around this stuff and developed strategies for governments on how you can promote creativity and make it more accountable. And none of it's to say that, you know, there shouldn't be testing and none of it says that there shouldn't be standards and, and that there shouldn't be an agreement about the curriculum. The, the problem is not the, the fact of standardized testing. It's the way that standardized tests have become the dominant culture of education. You know, and we should be clear about it, this is a multi-billion dollar industry. You know, um, testing is a major sort of goldmine for all kinds of companies. 
and a lot of it doesn't have very much to do with education. Now, I've often said this, I can't think there's a kid in the world who gets out of bed in the morning wondering what they can do to raise their country's reading standards. Because, um, education is very personal. It's about individuals and how they think and what they feel, and, and there's no way around it. You, you cannot improve education uh, as some kind of abstract idea without understanding that you're dealing with people and how people think and feel and, and their motivations, their aspirations. And that's the primary task, is to engage people so they are excited about learning, so their imaginations are stimulated, so they find what's happening to them relevant, so they feel that they are important, so that it speaks to them individually. And if you do all of that stuff, yeah, I mean, by all means, have some standardized tests to see how they're getting on. Um, I've often said this, you know, if I have a medical exam, you know, and have a blood test, I want some standards applied. You know, I, I want to know what my cholesterol level is compared to yours and everybody else's. I don't want my doctor to tell me it's on some scale made up in the car, you know, like my cholesterol is what he calls level orange. You know, I don't know that. I mean, I want the numbers. But a good doctor doesn't stop there. They, they interpret the information and apply it to me. And I work out what I can do with the information. So it's not about getting rid of all forms of standardized testing, but it's certainly to, a lot to do with humanizing education and getting testing and accountability systems in their proper place in education, which is supporting the system and not suffocating it. Well, it felt to me as though all of the stories you told about individuals who overcame educational experiences that didn't really uh, respect their gifts or talents uh, could possibly have been told about the teachers as well. That, that, that both the students and the teachers in the system are not in a position to actually uh, find their passions or, or to be in their element. Well, I think they are, honestly. I do think they are. Uh, we'll come on to that maybe. But, um, but you're right. I mean, I, I never speak of criticism of teachers. Uh, I've worked in and around education all my life. And, uh, you know, some of my best friends, you know, are teachers. I used to train teachers. I worked in universities. I've run courses for teachers. I've run workshops. I've run uh, graduate programs for teachers. I've worked in schools with teachers. So, you know, I'm not knocking teachers. It, it's, you know, it's, it's the most honorable calling and it's a great profession. And I know brilliant teachers uh, and great schools. I also know bad teachers, and they shouldn't be doing the job. You know, I mean, I know great doctors, and I know bad doctors, and they shouldn't be doing the job either. They should go and find their element, you know, and not, and not kind of impose themselves on hapless children who don't want to be in the room with them. But for teachers who love the job, then it's a great job to be doing, and, and often I see remarkable work being done. But you're right; they feel as trapped by this as everybody else. That's why I say it's not the things I'm talking about aren't deliberate, for the most part but they are systematic. And the reason I say that is because education is a system. It's a mass system like manufacturing. It's like a mass production model. It was developed in the interest of the Industrial Revolution. I'm talking about mass public education. And it was created in the image of industrialism. And you see it everywhere. It's based on linearity. It's based on conformity. It's based on standardization. It's based on batching people by age, you know, we still uh, educate all kids because they're the same age, you know, by age. Like the most important thing they have in common is their date of manufacture, you know, like all the eight-year-olds, all the nine-year-olds, all the ten-year-olds, all separate. Um, so it's a system, and teachers, you're right, right, they feel as trapped by it as, as anybody else. And, but I do think they can do something about it. You know, I was saying at this latest TED talk, which I hope you'll see when it comes out in a couple of weeks, that I think the big shift we have to make is as it has been in the green movement. You know, we have to go from thinking of education uh, as a manufacturing process, uh, as an industrial process, uh, and change metaphors. I think a much better metaphor is agriculture. You know, the, it's what I said at the end of the book today, that, that gardeners uh, live by helping things to grow. The irony is they can't make them grow. You know, no, no gardener can make a plant grow. They don't paint the leaves on it and attach the roots and stick the petals on the plant. The plant grows itself. What gardeners know are the conditions under which that's most likely to happen. 
And good gardeners create great conditions and bad ones don't in their crops going. And great teachers know the same thing. People who run human systems know that, that human organisations are like organisms and they flourish if the conditions are right and if the conditions are poor, they don't. So what I am arguing for is that we should get off this fast food model of education where we standardise everything, it all gets parceled out, you know, like, um, like burgers, and that, that we should customise education to local circumstances. We have to recognise it's personal, that we have to develop each individual in the school or in the community, and that head teachers and parents and teachers themselves have a lot of freedom to regenerate the culture of their, their own institution. And they shouldn't wait for their government to tell them it's okay, they should get on with it. They shouldn't wait for Washington or London or Paris or Berlin or wherever it is to say this is okay. They should look at their own situation and look at what they could do within the current framework to transform it into a place that's generally fertile and encourages growth and development. And all the great schools I know do that, they're doing it already. So I think there is more freedom than people think very often. Okay, so we're getting a, a lot of wonderful chat here. Uh, there was a little bit of a thread a few minutes ago saying, why aren't we being able to interact more here? So uh, what would you like to ask the audience, Ken? And, and obviously a question that involves typing in the chat will be harder to follow, but if you wanted to ask a yes-no question or how many here are actually educators themselves, the audience would like to be able to participate. So is there a question you could ask? I love that. Yeah, I would like to know how many people here are educators. So if you're an educator, click on the green check. If you're not, click on the red X. So down at the bottom of the participant window, you'll see a green check and a red X. We'll give you a couple of seconds here to indicate that, and then I'll bring the poll results up. And Steve, is there a way of people putting questions to me? Right. We are, we are now going to switch to the Q&A portion of the show. Terry's right. been keeping track of a couple of questions. Uh, while I get the poll up, one question was, and I, th and I think there are examples in the book, but uh, you know, are there some ready examples you have of schools where you really feel like this is being done well? Well, yeah, there are lots. Um, there are uh, schools all over the world, I think, that are doing a great job. The thing is, you know, they, um, the gardening metaphor is important because you know, if you work with an industrial metaphor, you, you can kind of assume that if we could just find the, the magic bullet here, you know, if we could just tune the machine, if we could just get it really streamlined and cut out the excess, it'll hum along beautifully forever. And it won't, because organic systems aren't like that. You know, um, like any kind of garden, like any natural organic system, it's subject to change according to how the climate is. And, uh, you know, I used to teach in universities, and you know, you'd, you'd turn up one year to teach the course you taught last year, and it wouldn't work in the same way because the students are different. Uh, you know, something happened, the weather changed, and so it's all about adapting and recognizing that one thing, that something that works in one place may not work somewhere else. But that said, you know, there are great schools. Um, there's a whole cluster of schools across the middle of America called A+, uh, which are based in Oklahoma and Carolina and Arkansas. Uh, they're using arts techniques to transform the curriculum. Um, and I think they're, they're a very interesting uh, series of schools. And, and the, all the research is, as you might expect, that when, um, when kids get engaged creatively and when the, and the faculty do, all the test scores go up as well. You know, there, there's a lot of evidence to show that. But if you don't get fixated on testing, but you get fixated on helping people learn and get energized, everything else falls into place after that. I think the kids' schools are interesting. Uh, you know, the knowledge is power schools. There are a number of those in, in the private sector, the charter schools, which are developing across America. Um, there's a scheme in the UK called Creative Partnerships, which is working with schools across the country, uh, which was partly stimulated by an initiative I was involved in 10 years ago called All Our Futures. And they, they have some great examples on their website. Um, I'm also helping with a number of particular initiatives. Uh, the, the Blue Man Group in New York has started a school called the Blue School, uh, which is for kindergarten kids at the moment. And uh, I think they're doing very interesting work, and it's a good school to look at. And it's being uh, connected to a network of international schools, like the, the Reggio Emilia schools in Italy. There are lots of them, and, and they all have something to teach us. But the trick is not to try and replicate them, uh, but to learn the principles they have to offer. It's sort of like rock bands, you know, I mean, 
you can all, you know, you look at great banners and think, you know, they're fantastic, but if you start trying to copy them, you know, you, you just become derivative, and what you really want is to make your own music, and I think that's what people should be doing in education. I will tell you that there are several stars in the book next to your phrase. Uh, I passionately believe that when it is properly integrated into the curriculum, drama can transform the culture of a school. Coming from a family with uh, three daughters who are all involved in drama. Yeah, I mean, I, my first great passion in education was for drama. It, it's called theater very often in, uh, in America. Um, but uh, my doctoral thesis was about the, the place of drama in schools. And I met my wife, Terry, uh, when she was a drama teacher in Liverpool. Uh, she, she worked in a, a low-income school in Liverpool, a really different part of the city. And uh, she was responsible for teaching drama across the whole school and helped with it. a fantastic head teacher called Albert Hunt and the other teachers in the school to transform the culture of that school in a very unpromising part of, of you know, a city that was in decline at that time. And drama has a fantastic role to play in education by helping kids develop a, you know, a sense of confidence by developing a sense of working with teams, giving them a language to express their feelings, giving them a language to express other people's ideas, and engaging it in different aspects of their own personality, you know, to try different aspects of themselves out in a, in a way that can both be you know, um, risky in a good way, but also uh, a way that really extends their own boundaries. And that, a lot of the work I did initially was, was particularly about drama. But then what I saw were a lot of connections between drama and theatre and dance and music and the arts more generally. And then uh, some similar principles being applied across the sciences and maths. You know, this isn't all about the arts at all, although the arts have a huge contribution. But it's a great tragedy to me that among the casualties of this obsession uh, with standardised testing in schools has been the arts uh, in particular. You know, there's a hierarchy of subjects in schools and at the bottom of it normally are theatre and dance. And ironically, it's those disciplines that often help some kids more than anything else if they're taught properly. It all has to be done well. There's no, no magic formula there. It's about the quality of teaching, which was true in Terry's school. But if the teaching's great, those disciplines can be absolutely transformative. And I would always say to schools, if you really want to re-energize the curriculum, get theatre and dance back in the curriculum and, and, and start to make connections across with other disciplines, and you'll be amazed at the difference it makes. Okay, I want to turn the mics over to those of you in the audience. If you have a question for Sir Ken, please use the hand with the green up arrow icon and you can raise your hand and I'll give you the mic. I, we may have more questions than we'll have time for, so please be brief. Just ask a single question and then we'll let uh, Sir Ken respond. So I'm going to, uh, uh, Adriana, I'm giving you the mic. You turn the mic on by clicking on the larger microphone button in the audio area. If you haven't gone up to Tools Audio and Audio Setup Wizard to test your mic, you may not have success. So I'm going to move on now to Sally. And Adriana will come back to you if you, uh, you come back. Sally, are you there? Okay, so do be sure to run the Audio Setup Wizard before raising your hand to take the mic. I'm going to move on to Neil. Neil, I've given you the mic. Would you like to ask a question? Hey, hello. Hello. I, I can hear you. Hear you. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. Um, my question was: uh, um, Is there any way that that we can promote? Uh, I was I was posting these as little posts earlier, but uh, I just thought that maybe uh, uh, you know sometimes to be a little realistic. Also, um, uh, it may be required to, uh, uh, to to allow students to. Uh, you know, make the living that they need. Uh, maybe not doing something that they're passionate about, but uh, uh, at the same time promote uh, the idea that uh, you uh, you can do something that you really like and enable them to find uh, find that uh, find that uh, that thing that they're really passionate about. Because sometimes it may be like in the case of Steve, uh, something that hasn't even been invented yet. So it may take time to find that. Uh, and uh, knowing sometimes what you're passionate about is not so easy. Uh, sometimes you may think that you're passionate about something, but uh, uh, really helping students and, and people identify that. And also uh, making them aware that 
uh, or being aware rather that the education system is not the only thing that curbs your enthusiasm sometimes. It's uh, your peers yeah, yeah. That, that do it. It's, uh, um, I, I had a recent insight into that which I put up in the post there. Um, so uh, uh, giving them that, uh, that information that helps them understand that somebody else could be doing that to them and uh, that they need to look beyond that. Yeah, I, I think I, I think all of that's right, and you know the um, the point I want to pick up on from what you're saying there, Neil, is that the you know this isn't uh, an argument about having to you know find a way of making your living from the thing you love to do. I have a chat in the book called "For Love or Money," and you know it, it's equally the case for some people they don't want to do the thing they they love to do. They don't want to be in their element for a living. Uh, it would be it'd be too burdensome for them. They don't want that. They they want to earn a living one way, but to do the thing they love to do as, as an enhancement to their life in general. Um, but a lot of people, I just want to touch on this briefly if I can. A lot of people do find it difficult. Um, perhaps the majority of people. And um, part of what, what I want to argue in the new book is that really it's a two-way journey. You know, if you're interested in finding your element or helping people at any point in their life to do that. This isn't all about kids, you know. It's about adults too. And as long as you're alive and breathing, you know, there's there's hope and possibility. Um, but it's a two-way journey, and if, what part of it is to look inward to yourself and to try and spend time with yourself, remembering those times where you did feel most comfortable, most authentic, the activities that you were drawn to naturally. A lot of people I spoke to were drawn to very different things when they were kids. You know, I spoke to Mac Raining, who developed The Simpsons. He spent most of his free time at school drawing, you know, doing little cartoons. Um, Bart Collar, the gymnast, spent most of his time on his hands, you know, and uh, I didn't interview him for the book, but Cameron Sinclair, the architect, spent most of his childhood playing with Lego kits. Uh, you know, Gillian Lynn, the dancer, was constantly moving. So kids give us messages all the time about things they're interested in, things they're naturally drawn to. And, and part of this is hearing what they're saying, you know, it's reading the signals and, and seeing whether you can encourage this or not. And when we get older, I think often we should, we should be spending time revisiting those experiences, trying to recapture what those things felt like. And, you know, that may be, for some people, best done not by making this, but doing a storyboard, you know, picking out images and creating a, a collage of things, um, or through meditation or, you know, whatever process people find best to explore their own inner feelings. But there's another journey, which is an outward journey, which is to try new things, you know, to put yourself in new situations. You know, if you've never done something you always want to do, go and do it and ask yourself what would be stopping you. Because part of discovering your element is putting yourself in situations where new aspects of yourself are revealed. I say, you know, this, it's often the case that our talents are very deep and they don't come to the fore until we test them or try for them. And that's part of the argument I had for schools offering a much broader curriculum, for example, and a much broader range of experiences. I spoke recently at a great organization called the National uh, Council for Youth Leadership. And they're based on the work of uh, a great guy called Jim Kielsmeyer, who promotes service learning. You should check that out on the internet too. But that's a, a very simple idea, which is to not um, just promote abstract theoretical teaching in schools, but to get kids involved in practical projects, you know, to get them involved in the community, to take them out of the school and get them involved in doing real things that have real benefits for people. But relating you know, the, the broad curriculum to those activities, it's one of the powerful things about their art. They're very practical processes. You know, putting a play on is a very practical piece of work, and it has all kinds of benefits you, you can't predict. So enriching and broadening our experiences is essential for finding your element, and you don't know where you're going to find it until you, look, until you kind of broaden the search. So we've got... 11 people who are holding to ask questions, and we have three minutes. So, Adriana, I'm going to give you the mic. Those of you who aren't able to ask a question, I did start a website yesterday called bookdiscussions.com, and I did put the element up on that site. So feel free to go there and actually continue the conversation at bookdiscussions.com. So, Adriana, did you want to try and try again? Hello? We can hear you. Okay. Um, I'm Adriana from Mexico. Hi there. Um, I read your book and I'm a huge fan. Thank you. And 
and I'm in charge of training in an IT company here in Mexico and um, well dealing with very specialized knowledge and that doesn't leave much space for involving passion and uh, we're also dealing with a very very uh, I don't know complicated personalities people who are so involved with uh, logic that doesn't have much uh, to think about passion and, and how they do or don't love their job. So what can you recommend for teaching people of IT? Of IT? IT, information technology. Yes, IT, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I find it interesting to describe them that way. You know, I'm, I'm always a bit loath to, to stereotype people by the jobs they do. Um, but yeah, I mean, some people are locked into a particular view of the mind, a particular view of intelligence. I mean, a lot of what I'm arguing for is that there's much more to intelligence than the kind of logical processes that are uh, the particular type of logical process that get promoted uh, in conventional education and conventional academic work. I think. Um, it, you know, without knowing your exact situation, it, it's hard to be prescriptive. But I do think that uh, giving them uh, different types of group activities, giving them different kinds of creative projects to be engaged in, giving them uh, work to explore which can't be solved you know, with a strict logical formula, it's always the hard bit. I, I've worked with all kinds of groups in business. You know, and, uh, I worked recently with a, a group of um, people in an international bank and it was to look at issues of innovation and creativity. And rather than sit and give them a lecture, I ran a workshop with them, you know, a, a theatre workshop. If you get people on their feet and moving around and get them to improvise, uh, it's amazing how uh, their mind shifts, you know, how they go into different modes of thinking. They're often terrified. Um, I remember this particular group of bankers, that the, the most challenging they had to do was take their shoes off. I think they felt if they took their shoes off, they'd, they'd you know, be exposed in some dreadful way, but they did take them off. And uh, at the end of two hours, they're all sitting cross-legged on the floor like a bunch of old hippies. It was really interesting to see it. Um, I did a workshop a while ago as well with one of the uh, Native American um, uh, communities in Oklahoma, the Chickasaw. Uh, we spent a morning together, and one of the things we did there was not to just sit around the table talking, but to working groups creating images of the future. If you get people to think visually, and again, it kicks their minds into a different mode. It makes them connect differently. Uh, so I think giving them different things to do, setting them different tasks, giving them creative challenges where they can't just fall back on their own way of thinking is often the key to get them to, to unlock their own creative power. Okay, so it's 6 o'clock. I'm going to use the clapping hand here, Sir Ken. Thank you so much for coming. This was a, really a delight. You're a prince. It was just wonderful that you would take the time to do this. The education world, uh, at least our portion of it, loves you and really appreciates the work that you're doing. We're delighted to hear that there's a new video coming out from TED Talks, and also it sounds like maybe a new book in the works. So thanks again for being here tonight. It's a great pleasure. And by all means, go to my website, people watching this. If there's more information there, you might find it interesting and helpful. Thanks, Steve. I really appreciate all the questions. And thank you all for joining in the, the conversation. Thank you, Sir Ken Robinson. Thanks to those of you who have come tonight. We sure are glad that you were here. Please tune in again. The recordings for this show will be up uh, within a couple of hours. Um, thanks to Steve Bloom and Associates for the book sponsorship. They, they cover my book expense. And thanks to everybody at Illuminate and all of you for being here tonight. So for those of you who are used to our post-show chat, we'll stick around for a few minutes.
Uh, sure glad that you were here. And uh, also, please go to bookdiscussions.com if you'd like to continue talking about the element. Uh, it's also a place where you can add your own uh, book groups. So hope that's fun for you and that it makes a difference. Um, and I've got about 15 minutes, and I'll hang out and see if anybody wants to take the mic or to comment on tonight's session. So we didn't get to the questions in the chat because poor Teresa Beffa lost her connection. Uh, I didn't ask Angela if she had any, but uh, they would be good to put at uh, bookdiscussions.com. Uh, does anybody want to talk about anything at this point? I'm going to actually clear the hands because I think you were raising your hands to talk to Sir Ken. But if you'd like to raise your hand, you're welcome to. Carol, I'm going to give you the mic. Thank you. Can you hear me? Coming in loud and clear. Super. Um, this is actually a question I had for Sir Ken, but I would like to ask it of anyone who's out there. Uh, one of the problems or one of the challenges um, is how do you empower educators to change their perception uh, on creativity and innovation? I know there's a, a master's program at Buffalo State that's very well respected in the domain of creativity. I don't know of a PhD program. And generally, if you're in higher education, we need that PhD in order to garner respect and have anybody listen to your ideas. Um, and I'm wondering if anyone on the program or anyone listening in has any ideas about where there might be a PhD or further um, programs to help empower people in the education field to feel free to be creative and innovative. So I'm going to turn your mic off, Carol, because I get an echo. You can turn it back on if you'd like. But if anybody would like to answer that question, please feel free to raise your hand or put it in the chat. Looks like there are some responses. Lesley University, Walden, Cambridge. A PhD in passion, Angela Myers messages. She wants one of those. So it was fun to see so many people out tonight. I think we were over 515 at one point. That was a lot of fun. Uh, Illuminate seemed to hold up pretty well, although I know some people had difficulty um, keeping audio. And my audio actually lagged for a bit there. Um, but, but those are more typically internet issues than anything else. Um, it was sure fun to see him live. I'm really glad he turned on his webcam. So tomorrow, uh, we start uh, two sessions for Education for a Digital World 2.0. That series is beginning tomorrow. I'll pull up the uh, sessions for you. One is about building communities. Uh, these are from uh, their series being sponsored by or being hosted by um, the Education for a Digital World 2.0 book that's coming out. And tomorrow is uh, Cultivating Communities of Practice at 12 noon. Pacific time, that's a half hour session. And then at 12.30, blended work, experiences from international development projects. And that's also a half hour. Uh, and then the Merlot series coming up. But do go to futureofeducation.com and conversations.net to see more. I'm definitely going to buy copies of this book for my children. Uh, it was you know, a significant enough experience for me sitting down and really reading through it to prepare for the interview that, uh, that uh, there were several parts where I definitely want to hold some family meetings and talk about some of the principles involved there. Quite a, a significant work, in my opinion. Joan, I also uh, I actually purchased Out of Our Minds and got so engrossed in the element that I didn't go back to Out of Our Minds, but it, that will now be on my reading list as well. It might be fun, Joan, if you want to put that up as a book uh, group in bookdiscussions.com, and we can start uh, talking about that there. And for those of you who really want to be on the cutting edge, uh, Jenny, Luca, and um, Jackie Gerstein and I are starting a Students 2.0 network, students20.com, where we hope that students will have a, an opportunity to drive their own education. This comes out of uh, an experience that Jenny had where she proposed a curriculum on um, 
social media in her school and it wasn't accepted because it didn't fit with the curriculum and so uh, she's actually going to teach a several week course on social media to students who want to learn. So come to students20.com and see if we're doing anything worthwhile there as well. Absolutely, Jackie. It will all happen. Carol, feel free to email me if there's a contact you'd like me to make and if it sounds like it might be a good interview. Uh, we're having a lot of fun here. I'm booked out till June or July right now. Sure glad, uh, sure appreciate your coming, participating, and I really think that we are having some fun here talking about the future of education. Yes, please send any suggestions for future sessions to my email address. And I think we'll wrap up. Thanks for coming tonight. Thanks for uh, participating. And if you don't mind actually leaving the room, we have to have everybody out of the room for the recording to process. If you don't leave in the next couple of minutes, you'll notice that I actually kind of bump you up. So nothing personal, just making sure the recording can process. Thanks for coming tonight. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are.